everyone has the potential to achieve. So we make sure that our qualifications give all students the opportunity to show what they can do and progress to the next stage of their lives. Our UK qualifications are highly valued by employers and universities around the world. As an independent education charity, our income is reinvested back into AQA's charitable activities, funds our cutting edge research and supports our initiatives to help young people facing challenges in life realize their potential. Hello there, welcome to another job pod. Uh, today I'm joined by Professor Elan Kelman, who's Professor of Disasters and Health at the Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction and the Institute for Global Health at University College London. Welcome to Job Pod, Elan. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> well, I've ended up doing quite a lot of research on this because you've done a, um, a lecture for the, the last conference. And you've got some videos, which I thought were really interesting. So all of those I'd really like to put alongside this podcast as we go, because I think it will draw out some of the things that you talk about as, as we, we go along, as well as listening to your book, which I'll come back to later, Disaster by Choice. I think that's that's there are some pointers in that which I want to talk about as we go. But I've, I've just they've been little re revelations for me. And. Um, because you've changed the way that I've looked at things a little bit. In the, in the aims of the Institute, it states this. It says, understanding global risks, reducing disasters and humanitarian crises present a major challenge that requires coordinated and collaborative action. And the Institute aims to achieve leadership in risk, disaster reduction and emergency response. And that's both in the UK and internationally. And I was thinking, what, what is it? It's a compelling subject, it's compelled me, but it's also marketed by schools. And if you look at what schools do when they're talking about their GCSEs and their A-levels, it's always mentioned as one of the top two, the top three subjects. So, but it's about disaster. And why do we get so excited by disasters? I certainly hope that it's not so much excitement about the disaster as the desire to help and particularly the aim to be a humanitarian, to assist people and really to ensure that we don't have disasters. It is so wonderful for us to hear that the secondary school students are interested in this. And we do offer our Bachelor of Science in Global Humanitarian Studies, a three-year degree at UCL University College London. So hopefully there may be many students who look towards it and are interested in it. But it's not just about humanitarian studies per se, it's all the skills, it's all the approaches we need. So if you're thinking about becoming an engineer or a doctor or a social worker or a lawyer or a geographer, because we always need geographers, human geographers, physical geographers and absolutely their interactions, do think about how we can all work together with our knowledge, our skills and our wisdom to better help people. And what we aim for what we certainly hope for at University College London and my institutes and my work is that the excitement comes from averting disasters, from stopping people from suffering, rather than excitement about the disaster itself. You've in your in your book, which I do want to come to later on, disaster by choice. This is something that really we're going to unpick as we talk. But I, I, I really like the point that you made that said 
disaster by choice is choices made by those in power. And, and that's not natural at all. And I want to come back to that in a bit, but it, it's, a, it's about power and decisions and, and understanding how people have, uh, have come to those decisions, which foist choices on people, or at least foist actions on people that have no choice themselves. You articulate it perfectly. This defines the challenge. This is humanitarianism. And this, again, is why we hope that people, places, and time inspire students and adults about geography. Because disasters aren't natural. They don't happen because of what the environment does. They don't happen because of what nature does. We know that earthquakes, tornadoes, avalanches, tsunamis, storms occur. And people do, unfortunately, get killed by them or their livelihoods are interrupted or the infrastructure gets damaged. But we know so much. And I go back to the disciplines I mentioned earlier and the professions I mentioned earlier. We have the engineering knowledge for infrastructure to stand up. We have the social work knowledge for people not to have social difficulties or mental health difficulties or societal challenges when nature does what nature does. We have the medical knowledge to keep people alive. In some places, all this happens. In other places, it doesn't. And it's really unfortunate that we have all the wealth we need. We have all the resources we need to help each other. But yet those who do have power tend to accrue it. Those who do have a lot of wealth seem to want more. And as soon as we acquire more and more, as soon as we consolidate more and more with fewer and fewer people, some people are going to go short. And then when you don't have the power, when you don't have the resources, you don't have the opportunities or options to say, oh, I'm in a floodplain, therefore I need to do something about my house. You don't have the option or opportunity to say, hmm, I wonder if my office is going to stand up in an earthquake or do I have to be very cautious about going into work? You don't have the option or opportunity to be able to walk down the street without assault or harassment. So this means that certain people, a minority, are making choices for others to force them to get harmed, to get hurt, to not be able to help themselves when the environment changes fast like an earthquake or more slowly like a slow rise flood, exactly as the environment has always done. And often these changes give strong advantages to us. So that is disaster by choice, focusing on who has choices and who does not. It's interesting there because you've talked about a multidiscipline approach. We we always tell ourselves that geographers are very good at, at cherry picking from bits and pieces and, and drawing subjects together. But we do need those experts like the technologists. And I see your, your master's at the University of Toronto was, was looking at technology, wasn't it? It was technology's role in managing. Now, this is the title, I think. So... This is interesting. Technology's role in managing natural disasters with case studies of volcanic disasters on islands. So there's two things I want to ask you about, really. Have you always been interested in, in this aspect, in, in looking at disasters and disaster prevention? And in your title, it said managing natural disasters. Have I got that right? So my interest has very much been along these lines. I always hoped that my work, that my career would be contributing to society. 
trying to improve it, trying to do better, trying to help people. And through I gain so much. We shouldn't be under the illusion that this is only about self-sacrifice. I do enjoy my work. I gain so much from it. I find it fulfilling. And yeah, there is a selfish aspect. I don't call it an unfortunately selfish aspect. I call it a selfish aspect because we do have our own lives to live. We do have our own interests. And the fact that we can teach, learn, and exchange, the fact that we can help others while helping ourselves, the fact that we can gain and contribute is really what the world should be about and what society should be about. And that means constructively nudging each other when perhaps things go wrong, we make mistakes. And during my master's and also during my PhD, I was not nudged to say that actually there's a long history before me suggesting that the term natural disaster is a misnomer and should not be used. So it wasn't just my master's, it was also my PhD, where I used the term natural disaster without critiquing it, without thinking about it. I feel I define the term fairly clearly. And both my dissertations, including my undergraduate dissertation, are online. So feel free to go to them, download them, and criticize it and let me know. <laughs> but a clear definition doesn't mean that it's correct. And so absolutely, in retrospect, I would not have used that phrase in either my master's or PhD. It was done. I'm not going to deny it. I put it online as a lesson. Let's continue doing better. Let's recognizing that knowledge does progress, does advance, and we do change. In the case of the phrase natural disaster, at the time it was longstanding not to use a phrase, and I should not have done it. But this is the time then to say, look, let's learn from each other. Let's do better and ensure that we go forward together better. I think if you did a trawl of a lot of school textbooks, natural disasters would still be the term, wouldn't it? I think it's only just, perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps it's been challenging for a while in schools, but I get the feeling that a lot of textbooks would still mention natural disasters. That's how they bleed into that subject. So let's change it. <laughs> and well, and, that, and I have been listening. I haven't finished, I'm afraid, yet, but I've been listening to your book, Disaster by Choice. And it, how, how our actions turn natural hazards into catastrophes. Natural disasters do not exist. And I've got it on Audible. It's just, a, if you're not listening to... Uh, a, a jog pod, then I suggest you go and get disaster by choice and listen to that. Not you, Elan, but everybody else who has. No, let, let's do both. I mean, it's all about <laughs> reading books, listening to books, reading transcripts of podcasts, and listening to podcasts. I sort of thought, I, I must say, I, I, I got the impression that disasters, as we read them in the news, are, are unusual. They're, they're things that happen elsewhere as well, quite often. But you clearly show in this that disasters are, are not unusual or strange. The disasters are the everyday. And you wrote that disaster epitomizes everyday geographies. And you talked about defining terms. So if a disaster is everyday, what is a disaster? What is one? This is absolutely the most awful part, that disasters are the norm. People in disastrous situations is what they experience all the time. They are not the extreme, not the unusual, not the unpredictable, not the unscheduled aspects of society. And part of what we struggle with, and this is a huge area of continuing work for research policy and practice, is that question, what is a disaster? 
it's remarkable how many full academic books have been written over the decades called What is a Disaster or Defining Disaster? Countries and provinces and states and cities have legislation where they have to define what they mean by disaster, crisis, calamity, catastrophe, emergency, or similar words. And of course, we have dictionaries. So yeah, we're speaking English, or at least, you know, my bizarre rendition of English. There are many <laughs> other languages, and some of them do have similar words to disaster, some do not. There are cultural connotations. There are interpretations. So how do we bring this all together? And in the book, I thought, well, I do have to somehow bring it together. And how straightforward, how simple could I be without being simplistic? And so trying to bring together all of these sources, I said, well, look, perhaps a disaster is just a situation requiring outside support for coping. Intuitively, it makes sense to me, and it seems to make sense to people who I speak to and who've looked at the book and my other work, as well as the field beyond me. Translatable, it seems to work across many languages and cultures. There's certainly a lot of vagueness. What do we mean by situation? What do we mean by coping? Even outside support or external support. But we can get around that if we accept it intuitively. Fundamentally, something happens. An individual or collective cannot deal with it, so others have to help. This defines poverty for people who cannot put enough food on their table each day. And it's been devastating even in the UK at the moment with this absolutely horrid cost of living crisis where people who thought, you know, they're okay, they're not rich, but they're doing okay, are suddenly wondering if they can afford the grocery bill. This also defines people who experience every single day and every time they step outside sexism or racism or other forms of discrimination, oppression, and marginalization. When you have to deal with that, of course you struggle to think about the flood or the earthquake or the volcanic eruption. How can you? How can you cope with these when simply people when people look at you and react simply by saying, oh, I don't like the way you look, therefore I'm going to cause problems for you. This is the everyday for the majority. Therefore, this is a disaster. And this is what we have to tackle. Because if people weren't dealing with inflation, if people weren't dealing with those who hate them simply because of the way they look or the way they talk, then they might be able to think, oh, can I check if I'm in a floodplain? Can I check if I'm in an earthquake zone? What happens if a tornado comes through? What about a wildfire? Am I in a burnable area? So this is why disaster is what the majority go through all the time. This is why the fundament is about people who make choices to force others to go through adverse difficulty, to go through difficulties, to go through adverse issues and situations all the time. So that when suddenly something from nature seems to be unusual or seems to be so-called extreme, of course their house collapses, of course they get injured, of course their livelihoods are interrupted, and then it hits the headlines. And we say, oh my goodness, it was a disaster. No one could have thought about it. When all we had to do was talk to everyone and take a look at their daily lives. And then we would have thought about it. So if you unpick those daily lives, then these people, I think in your terms, would be facing a whole series of hazards. Hazards and happen. Look, and we want yeah. to look at their vulnerability then. Yeah, so hazards happen all the time. When it's hot, that's a hazard. 
When it's cold, that's a hazard. When it rains, if you don't like the rain and don't have an umbrella, then that's a hazard. So this is why it's actually just about the environment. And the hazardousness of the environment comes from our inability to deal with it. This is that other word, the V word that you mentioned, vulnerability. When we talk about people's situations, that in effect defines vulnerability. Also within the vulnerability definition is how people were forced into those situations. And this is a long-term social, cultural, political process, which gives some people resources and takes it away from others, gives some people choices and takes it away from others. Look, if you can afford an umbrella and you have protection for your phone and computer, rain isn't an issue. If you have air conditioning and the power stays on, then a heat wave is not an issue. If you can afford different sets of clothes for minus 20 Celsius, minus 10, freezing plus 10, plus 20, plus 30, heat and cold, you can manage it. You can even enjoy it. And some people love the snow and some people love basking on the beach in 30 degrees Celsius. But you have to be able to afford that. You have to have the time. You have to have the opportunities and the resources. When you don't, that is vulnerability. And it doesn't matter what the environment does. If you are vulnerable, then the environment is going to be hazardous. We could look at the pandemic, I suppose, in that sense, couldn't we? And, and, and then look at the government's responses, or perhaps lack of them. I don't want to get too political. But we had a Threats, Hazards, Resilience and Contingency Committee that was, um, it was mothballed by, um, by Theresa May, I, th- I think perhaps a year prior to the pandemic, because we had a, a, an idea that a pandemic was coming. We'd already had a COVID pandemic earlier on, a different type of COVID, I think I'm right. So the government's response was to, would I be right, increase people's vulnerability by taking away the collective response or the collective understanding by disbanding that committee, which would have managed the vulnerability for those people who can't do it themselves. So in the UK, it is as insidious as you're explaining. Just a few years before COVID-19 emerged, there was a huge exercise for the NHS regarding pandemic preparedness. And the results were that, you know what? (laughs) There's not a chance that the UK, never mind the NHS, is ready for a pandemic. So let's not worry about it. Even before that, you alluded to a previous coronavirus pandemic, and in our lifetimes, COVID-19 is actually the second coronavirus pandemic. Perhaps many of the students listening to this will not have been born at the time of SARS, which was 2002 to 2004, SARS being severe acute respiratory syndrome. That was a pandemic with a new coronavirus that emerged and went around the world. Even in 2012, there was another coronavirus, MERS. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which never hit pandemic levels, but it was definitely an epidemic and it continues. And then 2009, just three years before MERS and five years after SARS, there was actually a flu pandemic, which did affect the world. So we knew this. As odd as a pandemic seems, it's not unusual. And part of it is definition because epidemic, pandemic, outbreak are a bit arbitrary. We are definitely continuing with the HIV AIDS pandemic, which has been ongoing since the 1980s. 
And depending on categorizations, we are actually in the world's seventh cholera pandemic. So even though COVID-19 seems odd, it's three pandemics at the same time. And within a reasonable lifetime, it's not going to be the only pandemic that people experience. So we knew all this. There was even a draft report to the UK Parliament in 2005 about how to deal with a pandemic given SARS. It never got beyond the draft phase because the pandemic ended. And so the political reaction was, oh, why worry? There's no longer a pandemic. We knew everything we had to know to stop this catastrophe. And yet so little was done, not just at the UK level, but elsewhere. This pandemic, COVID-19, started in China, not excessively far away from where SARS started. The response to both was equally bad, with the same mistakes made in both situations. And even at the international level, the World Health Organization, which is United Nations organization tasked with health, prior to some of the pandemics, its surveillance and monitoring division was actually slashed in terms of budget and staff. So of course, when you don't have the people there, what option do you have? None. What resources do you have? Few. So we knew this was coming. We've experienced it before. And yet even learning the lessons from far back in history, Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920, killed between 50 and 100 million people, million, Black death in the 14th century took out a third of the population of Europe. We knew this was coming. We knew the measures that people have and have not taken to counter disease outbreaks. And yet still, it appeared that COVID-19 was a huge shock, huge, huge surprise, impossible to predict, impossible to think about until it was far too late. And we see the devastation, not just around the UK, but around the world. That makes for very uncomfortable listening I think is particularly for politicians particularly for these people who manage our vulnerability or are, are supposedly responsible for managing our vulnerability I, I find that really quite upsetting yeah and many of the students listening will know they've gone through it their education was severely impeded was severely interrupted and those who are more affluent were able to afford the internet and the computer had quiet places for study could go to friends online or family in their homes for assistance. Those who are less, less affluent may not have been able to afford the hardware or software, may not have had a conducive study space within their homes during the lockdowns, and again, may have been struggling with their carers and the people around them losing jobs, not having income, having those stresses and having those worries. As always, people with fewer choices get hit far harder by normal, typical, expected hazards than those who have more affluence, more choices, more opportunities. It's also been interesting how people have played around with the cause of death um, to try and deflect from whether it's actually a disaster death or not. You've, you've written some really interesting work. I think you've challenged a piece that you quoted from Hewitt and Burton in The Hazardous of a Place. And I'm just going to read this because it really resonated with me. I, I found this really interesting. If a man drowns in floodwaters or is killed by a building collapse during an earthquake, the cause of death is reasonably unambiguous. But when a dying villager in Bihar is found to have a severe case of cholera, to have suffered chronic malnutrition for years, 
and not to have eaten for two weeks since no food was available due to the drought and the inadequate distribution of relief supplies, are we to say that he will die of cholera, malnutrition, drought, or administrative efficiency? Some combination of causes is true in all cases. But you argue, and I think rightly after our discussion here, that all disaster deaths are ambiguous. Even in an earthquake, the medical cause may be straightforward. Maybe it's physical trauma, crushing, shock. In a flood, it, similarly medically, it's fairly straightforward. Maybe drowning, maybe electrocution, maybe hypothermia, maybe physical trauma. What was the real cause? And the real cause is vulnerability. We're back to this fake term. So in that flood or in that earthquake, why was that individual in a position that they could not survive? In the earthquake, why were they in a building which collapsed? Why could they not think about their situation and change it? Do they have any opportunity to do what one ought to do in an earthquake, which is drop, cover, and hold? go to the ground, try and find something secure to get under like a table and hold on. In the flood, why did they end up in flood water? Did they not receive a warning? Did they think it would be safe? Did they feel obliged to drive through flood water in order to get to their job so they wouldn't be fired? And never ever walk or drive or cycle or skateboard or otherwise go into flood water because of the dangers. So this is an ambiguity. Why does each individual who has a clear medical cause in an earthquake or flood, why does each individual end up in that situation where they do have a clear medical cause? This is an ambiguity. We cannot fully define the disaster, so we cannot fully define the death, and we also really need to understand that baseline fundamental cause of what led to the medical complications. Again, this is vulnerability, the difficult, ambiguous term. Hence, not only is a disaster itself ambiguous, but the casualties resulting from it, the deaths and the injuries, they too are hard to pin down, to describe and to categorize. Hence, all disaster deaths are ambiguous. If we have a hazard, but we reduce the vulnerability, then by this way of looking at it, we just, we just don't have disasters. Absolutely. What about things like events like the tsunami in Japan, that's 2011, 15,000 deaths. How do, we, how do we cope with that? Well, there are several, aren't there? There's the, there's the you can compare like the Seattle earthquake in 2001 and Haiti in 2010, and the right. deaths are completely different. But even a developed country like Japan ended up with 15,000 deaths. That's a complicated question, because I'm actually to talk about three different things. <laughs> but if you could unpick all that, what's going on? No, it's a brilliant comparison because there was similarity in the hazards and completely different outcomes in terms of the disaster. And it works in the Japan level, but also comparing Japan, Seattle and Haiti. So let's start with Japan. 11th March 2011, one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded within the top five absolutely massive, hundreds of kilometers away in Tokyo, high-rises were swaying back and forth, which sounds dangerous, but the reason they didn't collapse is because they were designed to sway back and forth. So yeah, people got seasick, but that's a lot better than dying in a, in a collapsing building when you're 30 or 50 stories up. In fact, there were very few deaths 
in that earthquake in Japan. Because Japan had spent generations with planning regulations, building codes, behavioral changes, education awareness to say we're sitting in a huge earthquake zone. Here's what you do in an earthquake. And people did. So that day should have been a magnificent success to say here's how we can have a huge massive hazard without a disaster. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, there was a tsunami. How could we have avoided it? Well, learn from the past thousand years. Japan not only has a millennial history of earthquakes, which they took on board and dealt with, but it has a millennial history of tsunamis, which they didn't take on board and deal with. So there are terrifying videos on YouTube of the announcements blaring out in low-lying areas saying a tsunami is coming, evacuate now, and you see some people evacuating and some not. So that is a fundament. Why do some people respond in one way and others respond in another? There was enough warning to get everyone out. That didn't happen, so 15,000 died. There was plenty of warning before the nuclear power plant was built that it was highly vulnerable to tsunamis, and yet they built it anyway, which led to one of the world's worst nuclear power plant catastrophes when the tsunami inundated it knocked out a couple of reactors and led to extensive release of radiation. And we came very close to a full meltdown, which would have been really devastating for the globe. So the knowledge was there, but it's these long-term political social processes of people who have the knowledge, who make decisions not to worry about it by not educating and raising awareness about tsunamis in the same way they did for earthquakes, by putting people in vulnerable locations, which they know are going to be inundated by tsunamis without adding that layer of what to do when there's a warning. For earthquakes, we then go to the other two. And so that earthquake in Japan was massive. The one in Haiti on the 12th of January, 2010 was a hundred times less intense, yet led to over 200,000 deaths. So a less intense hazard, a far worse disaster. Why? Because Haiti has had over 200 years of very deliberate, very pernicious vulnerability creation. It has long been one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, has long been one of the most corrupt and misgoverned countries in the Western Hemisphere. Even using the Western Hemisphere as a phrase demonstrates a vulnerability because it's pejorative and colonialist, assuming that we can start somewhere and call East and West, that we can divide the world into hemispheres. So that whole linguistic construction that we use is actually epitomizing what the vulnerability is. And part of it was external colonial powers saying, well, let's just extract what we can from Haiti. Part of it was internal with two absolutely horrid, horrid Haitian dictators propped up by the outside world who devastated their own country. So if this happens for 200 years, if not more, why would you build infrastructure that can withstand an earthquake? Why would you have people who can make their own choices about how they live and where they live in order to stop themselves dying in an earthquake? The options were not there. As opposed to Seattle, which was 28 February 2001, and an earthquake fairly equivalent to Haiti, just slightly less intense, but the death toll was just a couple of people. And they died from cardiac arrest. There was also an increase in heart attacks in the weeks after the earthquake, which could potentially be attributed 
as earthquake deaths. Again, we're back to the ambiguity of disaster deaths. Mm -hmm. But it's remarkable that no one died from infrastructure in that Washington state earthquake. And it's because Seattle had spent two generations building up their infrastructure and retrofitting their infrastructure to withstand an earthquake. So uh, a relatively intense earthquake happened. There were also elements of luck, but a lot was skill that people did not die despite the infrastructural problems and despite the earthquake. They had resources, they had choices, they had opportunities, and they took it to avert a disaster irrespective of the hazard. Now, when Seattle experiences its 9.0, we'll find out how well they've done. Do we know why some of the, the Japanese didn't evacuate? And we, we teach all the time about the drills that they have in schools for the earthquakes. And you said that they knew that the tsunami was coming. So what, is it lack of education? Have, have they done some analysis so that next time that happens, will that information be passed to people? Will they be more aware next time? They're definitely working on it. The disaster of 2011 was a huge loss of faith for Japan. And it was just stunning culturally and for the country. They'd been through this before. On 17th January 1995, there was a major earthquake in the south of Japan, Kobe, where over 4,000 people died. And this was, again, a so-called shock to the system for the Japanese people, country, and culture, because they really thought that they were ready for an earthquake. From Kobe and other earthquakes, they've improved, they've changed, they've done a lot better. So we can certainly hope that all of the initiatives, all of the lessons, all the understandings that have been gained are being implemented and will continue. On the other hand, they have had over a thousand years of tsunamis. So part of it is next time, the expectation is they will do better because there's been a lot of learning and a lot of exchange. Will this last for a thousand years? We hope so, but we don't know. And same with earthquakes. Kobe 95 may seem like ancient history to many of the listeners, but it's obviously within the memories of lifetimes of many people. There's also the 1923 Tokyo earthquake, which was uh, highly, highly destructive, but very much known very much with high awareness in Japan and also amongst disaster researchers. All these aspects, all these lessons continue to be applied and continue to be drawn on. So we can hope that from the ruins of 2011, it will not be forgotten that Japan and the world will do better. And so next time, we will not have this devastation. Again, it takes one event, and then we'll know. But we are doing everything we can to make it better. And we do call on everyone, students, professionals, teachers, politicians, business leaders, nonprofit leaders to say, we have the knowledge, let's ensure we apply it. I've read a lot about Haiti's colonial past and the corruption and that's more understandable than than I found the the earthquake in Bam in um, in Iran in 2003 because that resulted in a, a lot of deaths and I, I don't know quite enough about the the backstory of Iran about why that was such a a dreadful earthquake as as well with consequences so this was 26 December 2003, death toll around 25,000 in the country of Iran, which has some of the best seismologists and earthquake engineers in the world. Yet we know also that Tehran is waiting. And when that earthquake hits the capital Tehran, 
it will be awful. It may even, sadly, be the first million death earthquake that we know of in human history. An unfortunate classic example of knowledge being there, awareness being there, and yet simply not applied due to this long-term societal process of vulnerability, where successive Iranian governments have been corrupt, supported by outside countries for their own wealth, therefore not helping the people, not helping the infrastructure. Then there was a major revolution in 1979, and they replaced one level of corrupt and competent leaders with another level of corrupt and competent leaders, this time supported internally rather than externally. And since then, the leaders seem to be more intent on waging war, annoying the world, and supporting destruction than helping their own people survive what is a perfectly typical environmental hazard. It's even worse that the reason Tehran exists in that place is actually because of the earthquake fault. The earthquake fault permits water to be far more accessible than when there is no seismic issues. And if you're trying to settle in the middle of an arid region, you need water. So without the earthquake hazard, there couldn't be a city. It's actually the earthquake hazard that permits the settlement of that area. So you know it's there, so therefore act on it. <laughs> and they're not. And there are other layers. Bomb is a United Nations World Heritage Site. And the reason that it is this centuries-old world heritage, or has the, the, the centuries of a unique heritage in the world, is because of a type of construction which does make it more earthquake vulnerable. It's a, called adobe. It's a type of building material. But we also know how to build adobe, which is earthquake resistant. So, okay, we want to preserve heritage. I mean, that's fine. That makes a lot of sense. We also want people living there. I mean, that's fair enough. That makes sense. So all we had to do was use a small amount of resources to preserve the heritage, to give the people lives and livelihoods, but ensure that they don't die when a known earthquake happens. And that is not done because of political reasons. It's not about nature. It's not about the environment. It's not about the seismicity. It's not even about the people who died who don't have the choices. It's about those who can make the decisions and have the power to do so, making an active choice not to do so. Well, goodness me, I don't know whether to call you Cassandra or Nostradamus, but we heard it here, potentially the first million death <laughs> earthquake. <laughs> I, I hope that uh, rather than either of those, I'm simply a human being trying to work with other people to improve society based on the knowledge and resources we have. It's clear from what you've been saying that um, we shouldn't talk about a disaster event because it's a process. It's a long-term process where you can have mismanagement through political means, through war, through corruption, but it, it's disaster events, the wrong thing to call it. So that's exactly it, because it comes from vulnerability, and vulnerability is a long-term process, the disaster itself is also a long-term process. There really is no such thing as a sudden onset or fast onset disaster. Disasters do not happen quickly, even when the hazard does happen suddenly, like the earthquake or like the tornado. So it is a disaster process arising from disastrous conditions which are not events, they are all rooted in the long-term insidious process of vulnerability creation.
Often on exam questions, they'll ask students to talk about what are the hazards and they'll ask them about hazard categories. And it all seems, oh, well, I can box this into this and this, but it's much more complicated than that in reality, isn't it? This is part of the challenge we have, even defining hazard. And for those who speak different languages, try to translate the word hazard into other languages, because many other languages don't even have the concept, never mind the word. So it's all very well to say, well, it's an earthquake. Well, what is an earthquake? It's a ground moving, yet there's different mechanisms for the ground to move. We talk about an epicenter and we give it a latitude, a longitude, and a depth, but there's often many different failure points. And then if we're talking about what does it mean, it's not just the speed of the ground moving, it's actually the acceleration, the rate of change. And there's three dimensions. So, you know, at certain levels, it's fine to talk about an earthquake. That's not a concern. When we try and work out what does that really mean, it gets complicated. Same with a flood. Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it salt water? Is it fresh water? How do we deal with the speed compared to the depth, compared to the duration? What about contaminants like pollutions uh, or pollution? And, and it really does get complicated when we say, well, what actually is a flood? What is causing the problem? Volcanoes are fascinating. And as much as we don't want to get excited by destruction, volcanoes really are absolutely wonderful, wonderful phenomena from nature because they produce gas hazards, solid hazards, liquid hazards, and everything in between. There's things which are part gas, part liquid, part gas, part solid, and part liquid, part gas. It's absolutely fascinating. So are we an explosive eruption? Uh, what's called an effusive eruption, which is lava? Is it just a landslide? Is it just an earthquake? Is it just the ash? Is it the lava causing fires? So a volcanic eruption is a nice, neat category. What that means for people and infrastructure is the opposite. I suppose in summing all this up, the key thing that I picked up from what you were saying is disaster by choice. Choices made by others, those in power, and those choices being voiced upon those of us without power. That is a brilliant summary. Well, only because I finished it from you. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's up to us to also do what we can to make the positive changes. In the UK, We're very fortunate that we have a lot of freedoms and we've just spent time here dissing the UK government and yet we don't fear someone coming in the middle of the night knocking on our door and saying, how dare you criticize our leaders? Instead, we can do that. So we do have votes and it's a secret ballot. We have the option to stand to be elected and everyone can make that choice. So where we do have this modicum of power, recognizing all the difficulties such as media bias, such as money that goes into elections, such as people who do try and stand for a parliament and then get discriminated against or marginalized or oppressed. Yes, the system has its problems. There is corruption, but within the modicum of power that we each have and that we have collectively, it's about moving forward to change those choices, to change the power dynamics, to change the resource allocation, and to make the choices that we do have. So I would very much encourage anyone listening, look at politics, make the decision if you want to get involved as a public figure or not, and either is fine, or look at other ways, whether it's becoming an academic, a scientist like me, and using that modicum of power, that modicum uh, of choices to try and change people for the better, or all the other disciplines, all the other careers that we thought about to use geography, to use geographies in order to find our own role 
to make our choices in order to give the wider world more choices for themselves. When we look at the wider world, we then get into how countries help each other, as well as how countries help our, our politicians and people in power help the people within their own country. So we look at how, how power and help and aid diplomacy across the world is shared. And that's an interesting one as well. When you look at when some countries refuse aid, I was reading about the USA that refused aid from Cuba, North Korea and Iran. Okay. That was Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Oh, yeah, that's the one. That, that was God, you, you've, you've sorted my memory out for me. But it's interesting. So even America is at times that they refuse help. Sometimes countries let them in. Do disasters have a positive or a negative effect on global diplomacy? This is a whole field that we've been looking at called disaster diplomacy. Does dealing with disasters before and after, we're, we're talking about prevention and risk reduction in addition to response and recovery, does dealing with disasters bring together enemies? And the terrible political answer is we cannot show that it does. In general, disaster diplomacy does not work. And what happens, particularly in a disaster, but also with some of the, the pre-disaster actions, if there is already an impetus or a pathway towards trying to work together, any excuse will be used to achieve that diplomacy. And that might be a major earthquake leading to destruction. It might be a flood or it might be trying to avert a disaster. But if countries do not want to come together, if countries see a political or ideological advantage in continuing the enmity, then they will specifically use humanitarian aid, stopping disasters, and emergency response to continue that dispute. They will specifically use disasters and disaster-related activities to avoid diplomacy. So again, it comes down to choice. Leaders have choice. Do we want war or peace? Do we want conflict or cooperation? Often, it is ideological. Often it is purely political to hang on to power, to gain power, or to say, well, the people who I like are going to gain economically and financially from it. And if people die because of that decision, that's unfortunately part of the political calculation. Conversely, if it helps them to save lives, and they will do that, not necessarily to save lives, but to help their own political ambitions. And so disaster diplomacy really is only one part of the wider diplomatic pathways and endeavors where people know what they want to achieve and will typically use any means in order to achieve that. I suppose when a, a disaster occurs in one country, then it's easy to look away. But if, it, if um, a tsunami result, as it did, not just for Japan, then you perhaps, do you, um, I don't know, do you have a different dynamic from governments? Because then you've got, what do you do about warning countries who are going to experience that tsunami, but in 20 minutes time? It's purely political. Issuing a warning, even when it's correct, can cause political difficulties if the leaders want to cause those political difficulties. This is what disaster diplomacy shows us as a very difficult lesson, that politics is frequently uncaring. And, and I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, we, we do see it every day, which is really awful. And we do illustrate that. And we see that in practice. So 26 December 2004, in fact, exactly one year after the BAM Iran earthquake, there was a massive, massive earthquake off the coast of Indonesia. And fairly straightforward, well, all you do is warn people and they can evacuate. 
but there was no Indian Ocean tsunami warning system, which is a bit crazy because there had been one in the Pacific Ocean since 1949, really formalized in 1960. And based on the successes of the Pacific tsunami warning system, people have been trying since the 1970s to get one in the Indian Ocean. But it was always too expensive. There were always other priorities. Oh, it hasn't happened for 100 years. Why worry now? And so that tsunami raced across the Indian Ocean, hit over a dozen countries, and killed a quarter of a million people. 18 months later, we had an Indian Ocean tsunami warning system. <laughs> we are remarkably talented at averting the disaster that just happened. So this is pure politics. And it was really awful because when that earthquake hit on the morning of 26 December local time, it was Christmas Eve in Hawaii, which is where the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center exists. So the people who are part of that center and basically run the Pacific Tsunami Warning System received the information, they saw the earthquake, and they knew immediately this was big. They knew right away that there was a huge tsunami incredibly dangerous, but there was no mechanism for them to warn people. They tried their best, but we're talking Christmas in the US. We're talking holiday time in many places around the world. So no matter how hard they tried to get people on the phone and get the messages out, there was no scope, no readiness, no education, no awareness. So even where messages were issued, people said, well, what's a tsunami? What am I meant to do? This contrasts with two beaches where one individual on the beach in the Indian Ocean knew what the signs of a tsunami were, saw the ocean behaving strangely, and said, everyone, get off the beach now! And they each saved about 100 people, simply one person who happened to know immediately what to do. It just shows that stopping a disaster is this long-term process. You have to have the knowledge and the resources, ability, and will to act based on that knowledge. I think I read about a, a young girl who recently studied that. Um, so that was Tilly Smith from ah, right. yes. and her, I believe it was her geography teacher who just a few weeks before had taught about tsunamis and so she knew the signs and she had to convince her parents on that beach when they were on holiday that this was serious but her parents listened to her and together they got people off the beach and saved a lot of lives on that day. We ought to know the name of the geography teacher as well as the name of the young girl, shouldn't we? <laughs> well, we absolutely should. But keep in mind, this is why it's a collective and collaborative endeavor. So as everyone here knows, particularly the teachers, we cannot teach without learning. And I hope all the students realize that their learning process is also a teaching process. So this is why it's an exchange. This is why it's a collaboration and why I just learned so much from you, from this discussion, and from others reacting to it. And I'm on social media, so please do join, please do connect. Say things to me which I said which don't make sense or which may be wrong, because we're in this together, and we have to work together in order to improve sort of our own disaster diplomacy. Let's try and ensure that we make disaster diplomacy work for ourselves and for everyone. It sounds very like a moral issue, really. I don't know if that's how you'd see it, but you made those choices because you wanted, you said you were interested, but you also want to make a positive difference to people's lives. Certainly trying and hoping. That is an ideological decision. That is a moral and ethical decision. To me, it really is actually about being human. We are... in, in, then in, in the classroom, 
we're talking in within that geography classroom. It's about morals and ethics. I suppose it always is wherever we've got a decision making process. There might be six or seven different decisions which all have consequences. I hate it when teachers say there are no right or wrong answers. There are lots of answers. And some of them are right, depending on what the consequences that you want out of it. So some politicians will look at a response and say, this is the right response. I'm an economist and we're saving a lot of money. What we find is that money is far less tangible than lives and living. That is a moral stance. It comes back to being human. Being human, do we want to assist each other and thereby assist ourselves? Or do we just want to gather, accumulate and put in the bank? as much money as possible, knowing that we are causing harm to other people by doing it. Of course we need money. We have to have food. We have to have shelter. We do want our options for having fun, for enjoying life, for contributing, and for living in livelihoods. It's not about taking away money. It's just saying that the moral, ethical, really the human issue is that we are one species on one habitable planet that we know about. Are we going to try and do better for ourselves and others? Or are we just going to say, I don't care about what happens to others. I'm just going to grab everything I can and forget about everything and everyone else. And yes, that's moral. But to me, moral, ethics, those are vague words. Being human, that's real. That was really what I took from reading your work and watching your conference presentation. It has opened my eyes and given me a different view, I have to say. And I thought I I was those things. But actually, you've made me think even deeper about how we ought to be looking at these things. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I've really enjoyed today. I think I ought to leave with a, a last question for you. So any advice that you might want to give to teachers, to young people, as a, as a takeaway from what we've said here, for, for what to think about? The advice for all of us is really what can we contribute and what can we gain? There are a lot of problems and difficulties in the world. There's also a lot of inspiration and hope. We are all trapped to some extent within our circumstances. We all have options and opportunities to some extent within our circumstances. How can we work together with each other to learn to teach and to exchange, to use what we have, to do what we can, to do far, far better? I have nothing else to say to that. That's a perfect summary. (laughs) Elan, it's been a pleasure talking to you today on JobPod. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us and enlightening us. Um, It's been fascinating. And thank you for your work. And thank you for being able to do this.